Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Good to hear your voices and see your smiling faces. I thought it would be uh, a blessing for us all to to look at a very familiar place today, but in a way that is maybe a little unusual. Uh, I'd like for us to look at what is the most famous verse in the Bible. What verse would that be? John 3.16, right? So let's turn there. John 3.16. It used to be the most quoted verse, but uh, now, these days, the most quoted verse is uh, probably, Judge not lest ye be judged. <laughs> Both are from the lips of Christ, but uh, the second one, Judge not lest ye be judged, is so often used to uh, basically say, hey, I can do what I want to do, and, and you can't stop me. But the, the context, of course, of that verse uh, is not about not judging. It's, it's about not judging hypocritically. But John 3.16, from the lips of Jesus, you could probably quote it from memory, but if you've got it there in your Bible in front of you, uh, let's read it together out loud. So you just read it out loud from your version And I'll read it from uh, the New American Standard, which is what I have here in front of me. So let's read John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, that verse is so familiar to us, it's almost cliché. We could say that over and over, and uh, it just kind of rolls off our tongue like our phone number does. In fact, many of us probably knew this verse before we knew our phone number from uh, very early days. But Easter is a great time for us to to look at this verse uh, carefully and uh, bit by bit and sort of put it in the juice squeezer, as it were, and uh, squeeze a little more juice out of it than we normally get, because it is really rich. It is, a, it is a wonderful verse. Notice that the verse starts with the word for, which means that he's explaining, Jesus is explaining something that he just said. If you look at the context just before uh, verse 16, you see that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He's talking to a religious leader of his day who came to Jesus at night asking Jesus questions. Who are you? We know that you've come from God. Uh, and because no one can do the miracles that you do unless God's with him. And Jesus jumps right in and begins to talk to Nicodemus about being born again and what it means to be born again. And in the explanation of the uh, the statement, be, be born again, Jesus gives an illustration. So back up a couple of verses before verse 16 and look at verse 14. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is speaking about an event that occurred uh, back in the Old Testament when Moses was leading the Hebrew children out of Egypt. They were wandering in the wilderness. The journey was taking too long. The people began to complain. And God sent snakes to, to bite the whiners. Aren't you glad the Lord doesn't still do that? We would all (laughs) be snake bit. But uh, 
the people finally got it. Say, look, we, we did wrong. We, we, we complained. Please tell the Lord to take away the snakes. And so what Moses did, he, uh, God told Moses to put a bronze serpent on a pole and to hold the pole up. And anybody that looked at the serpent, the poison in their body would not affect them. And Jesus uses this, of all things, as an illustration of himself. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In other words, we've all got a poison, as it were, in our, in our bodies, in our spiritual lives. And that poison is called sin. And we have to have that look of faith to the one who is lifted up, to Christ, who will be lifted up on the cross, and a look of faith to Jesus removes that which would otherwise take our lives. It's a beautiful illustration that Jesus uses. And of course, he's talking to Nicodemus, one who would have been well-versed in this text. So the word that Jesus uses here when he says for, he's basically saying it's an illustration. We've all got a poison, we've all got a problem, And I'm about to tell you the solution to that, what it means to be born again. Now, just so I can know who we're talking to here, give me a show of hands, those of you who have never sinned. Just go ahead and hold your hand up. You don't have to raise your digital hand. Just, okay, okay, yes, ma'am, I see. I see that hand. That's good. Anybody else? (laughs) No, nobody. Nobody's got their hand up, and nobody, uh, not none of us, are without sin. We are all in need of what Jesus is talking about here. We all need the antidote. Now Jesus begins to describe the solution to the problem. Look at John 3.16 again. It says, For God so loved. God so loved. Everything we do, if you think about it, has a motive behind it. Uh, Everything from getting up in the morning to the first cup of coffee to the first words out of our mouth, everything we do has a motive behind it. And this is also true with God. God's motive for what this verse talks about, we're told right up front, is love. And not just love, but He so loved. The emphasis in the Greek language is uh, very heavily on the word love. That's why it's translated so loved, because it's in the very beginning of the sentence. And in, in Greek, the, the word order isn't as important for us. We need, we need word order to know what the, noun, what the subject is, what the direct object is, and, and so forth. But in Greek, you've got uh, words that are, that are uh, laid out in such a way where they can be put in any order and you know what the subject is. And so the order is laid out to, to give emphasis. It's sort of the Greek way of italicizing or of underlining a thought. And in this sentence, as John translated Jesus's words, as John recorded Jesus's words in the Greek language, the words here for loved are first in the sentence. The emphasis is God's love, his motivation for what he did when he sent his son. And he did it not so that we would think he's a great guy or that we would want to give him something. He did it because that was who he is. God is love. And of course, you probably guessed that this word, we've heard it so many times in church, the word is agape, or that's the noun form of the, the verb here, agapo. 
And it's a love of self-sacrifice. It's not a love that has self-interest. It's a love of self-sacrifice. In English, if we want to um, italicize something, if we want to emphasize something, we italicize it, or we give emphasis to it as we're speaking. But this sentence is right up front. God so loved. That's the emphasis. Martin Luther one time said, he said, If I were as our Lord God, and these vile people were as disobedient as they be now, I would knock the world in pieces. That sounds like Luther, doesn't it? Aren't you glad that Luther wasn't God? There was a child named Harper that wrote a letter to God. And in the letter, uh, Harper said, Dear God, it must be very hard for you to love everybody in the whole world. Our family has only four people, and I can never do it. (laughs) I love that. It's so true. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, he said, On the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for Him. You see, God is the initiator of our salvation. He took the initiation. He took the... uh, uh, the desire to go first. He was the initiator in the relationship. We're the responder. Whether we accept or reject is up to us, but we didn't seek him. He sought us. Of course, John wrote, John three sixteen. but John also wrote 1 John. Listen to uh, this verse from 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. John writes, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God was the initiator in the whole deal, which is amazing. That shows his love. And notice in John 3.16, let's keep reading. For God so loved the world, is the next phrase, or the next words. Notice it doesn't say God loved the Jews or God loved just the good people. God loved the Republicans or some particular person. No, it says he loved the world. And the word here for world in the Greek language is cosmos. Guess what word we get from that? Cosmos, or cosmos, sometimes it's pronounced. And uh, our word, cosmos, is a reference to the universe, but uh, our definition of it is a, a reference to the universe in the sense that we see it as an order as an orderly universe, not as a chaotic universe. That's the idea of cosmos. But the word that John uses here for cosmos in in his language, in Greek, isn't just a reference to the universe. It is a reference to the earth, and not in this context, not just to the earth, but to the inhabitants of the earth. His point is saying that God didn't just love a few people. He loved everybody on the planet. God's love was a universal love. There's nobody excluded from what, uh, from what is taught in this verse. And God, notice it says also that God didn't, it, he, uh, uh, didn't just love the world, or not that he loves the world, present tense, but loved, past tense. Now, it's true God loves the world tr- presently, but this is saying about something that happened in the past. God loved the world. His motivation for sending Jesus into the world was a love uh, that he had. And it's an amazing contrast when you think about the whole context of it all. 
because like what Paul writes in the book of Romans, he says that we, uh, while we were sinners, while we were helpless, while we were enemies, Romans 5 tells us, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ didn't just die for those of us who loved him, because initially none of us did. You think about it. Who do we love? I love my children. You love your children. Um, you would love my children if you knew my children, but, but you don't. So you don't love my children. And we especially don't love the children of, like, say, uh, the Taliban. We don't love children of enemies, do we? This was God's love. He didn't just love his own. He loved those Paul describes as sinners, helpless, and enemies. This is the extent of the love of God. And as is true with any love, it's not just a love that is spoken. It is a love with action. Again, John, look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave he gave. Now you're in John 3. Keep your finger there and turn over to 1 John 3, chapter chapter 3, verse 17. 1 John 3:17. To love is to give. When we say I love you and yet we don't sacrifice, uh, the love is a contradiction. And certainly it comes across as a contradiction, whether we may think we're sacrificing, but it may not be received that way. A congregation sees the, con- the contradiction when a pastor says, I love you, but only uses them to serve his own purpose. A parent sees the contradiction in a child who says, I, I love you, but is only using the parent to get what he or she wants. A child can see the same thing. A child hears a parent say, I love you, but the the parent never spends time with the child. There's a contradiction with that. And it's the same in God's love for us. John gives an illustration in 1 John 3, and then he gives an application. Look at 1 John 3, 17. John writes, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. So John's given us the illustration here that love is not just words, it's action. And we see that in God's own uh, example, that he so loved the world that he said, I love you. No, he so loved the world that he gave, that he actually gave. The God who loved the world is the God who gave to the world. So, back to John 3.16, let's keep reading. Here's what he gave. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The phrase that here in the New American Standard, anyway, is only begotten. I think if you, if you have the New International Version, it says uh, his one and only Son, which is a better sense because... We don't really uh, use the word begotten very much, only begotten. That's, uh, we never use that unless we're quoting John 3.16. And even then, what does it mean, his only begotten? Well, in the original language, the phrase only begotten is translated from a single word, monogeneo. We get our word 
genetics from that second part. Geneo, we get our word genetics. Mono, of course, means only. And so in a sense that it's sort of saying that Jesus is the only one with God's genetics. He's the only one like God. We're called sons of God, daughters of God. In fact, we can call God our Father, our Abba Father, because of Christ. But Christ is the only Son of God who is God. He's the only one with God's genes, as it were. He is the only unique Son of God. This is the idea. Jesus is unique. There's nobody like him. He is the most special thing that God could have possibly given God gave his one and only son. So here's a, here's a principle, and in a sense, it's, it's a challenge for us, uh, an application for us, and here it is. First of all, consider how much God loves you. He gave up his very best for you. Consider how much God loves you. He gave up his very best for you. Max Lucado wrote a whole book on John 3.16 some years ago. And I think it's called 3.16. And he wrote a prayer. Lucado wrote a prayer. And I want to read this to you. It's really well written. Lucado writes, God, I have a question. Why do you love your children? I don't want to sound irreverent, but only heaven knows how much pain we've brought you. Why do you tolerate us? You give us every breath we breathe, but do we thank you? You give us bodies beyond duplication, but do we praise you? Seldom. You fill the world with food, but we blame you for hunger. You keep the earth from tilting and the arctics from thawing, but we accuse you of unconcern. We give more applause to a brawny ball carrier than we do to the God who made us. You have every reason to abandon us, yet, Father, your love never ceases. Never. Our evil cannot diminish your love. Our goodness cannot increase it. Our faith does not earn it any more than our stupidity jeopardizes it. You don't love us less if we fail. You don't love us more if we succeed. Your love never ceases. What a great, great prayer. So look again at John 3.16. Why did God give this special son? What's the purpose? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever. The old King James says, whosoever. Just as God unconditionally loved the world while we were sinners, his unconditional love is an offer to anybody, to whoever. The words basically reveal that God's purpose in sending Jesus to die for us on the cross was to offer a universal invitation to whoever would take it. The old Puritan Richard Baxter wrote this. I I love this quote. He says, I thank God for that word, whosoever. If God had said there was mercy for Richard Baxter, I am so vile a sinner that I would have thought he meant some other Richard Baxter. But when he says, whosoever, I know that includes me, the worst of all Richard Baxters. (laughs) What a great way to put it. Remember that hymn? Uh, Kathy and I have been singing it this week. Whosoever surely meaneth me, surely meaneth me, oh, surely meaneth me, whosoever surely meaneth me, whosoever meaneth me. Every time I sing that, I think of the theme to Hogan's Heroes. I can't get that theme out of my head because it starts about the same. 
But it's what a great truth. Whosoever, it surely meaneth me. And it means you. You who were, melt, who were made to feel like you were the exception to the love of God. You who were condemned by a boss or a pastor or a parent or a friend or a child. You who were made to feel small in the eyes of someone else. You who know your sin better than anybody else knows it. Even you. Whoever. You are not the exception to the grace of God. You and I both are recipients of God's grace in His only Son, Jesus. And I also love the word whoever because it means come just as you are. Whoever includes the word however. It includes whenever. It includes wherever. It means come as you are. You don't have to change anything to come to Christ. You just come. And when you come, then, uh, then God changes us. The Apostle Paul felt the same way. Listen to his own words. Paul wrote, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason, I found mercy, in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. That's from 1 Timothy. And that's exactly what Christ says in the next uh, phrase here in John 3.16. Look at that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him. A few years ago, I was talking to a, uh, a man who had just had emergency surgery. And he, we were standing out on the street on the square. I remember we were on the square in Denton, Texas. And uh, he had just had emergency surgery. And I said, what would you have done if you had died on that table? What would you have said to God if you had died and immediately you were in his presence and God were to ask you, uh, why should I let you into heaven? And this guy just kind of looked around for a second and he said, well, you know, I've always tried to live a good life. And you can imagine the rest of what his words were. And so after he was done, I just explained the truth of John 3.16 to him and told him that, that God's gift of eternal life is not whoever leads a good life, but whoever, as Jesus said, believes in him because of that poison that we have called sin that's flowing in our veins, that without Jesus, uh, that poison will not only take us physically, but takes us spiritually. See, John 3.16 shows us not only the universal love of God and the universal provision of God's Son, but it doesn't teach a universal salvation. Even though God's love is to anybody, God's offer is to whosoever, it shows our individual responsibility to respond to that love. Whoever believes, that's individual, that's singular. Because while God loved the world, believing in Him is something that we do by ourselves. You know, when we die, we're not going to stand there with our parents who took us to church. We're not going to stand there with our spouse who went to church with us. We're not going to stand there with our kids whom we took to church or with our friends that we're, that we're at church with these days. 
we're going to be there on our own, just us and the Lord. And it's going to basically boil down to, have we placed our faith in the one who believed? And remember, the, have we believed in the one who died for us? Remember the context. Jesus is telling Nicodemus what it means to be born again. He's explaining what it means that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus had to die. It wasn't just an option. This was something that had to happen in order for us to believe and to be saved. You think God would have given his only son if he didn't have to? That God would have given his very best if he didn't have to? That Jesus would have given his life like that if he didn't have to, if there was any other way? In fact, in Gethsemane, you remember Christ's prayer. Father, may this cup pass. If there is any other way for this to happen, may it happen. But not my will, but yours be done. Uh, and, and notice that the verse says that Jesus, that we must believe in him. It's not just that we must believe. We're not just have faith, which is something that you'll hear these days. Uh, you know, so many uh, uh, Disney movies and, and self-help books just talk about having a positive attitude or, or having faith or just believing. But believing in what? There has to be an object of our faith. And that object of our faith had better be reliable. It's sort of like if, uh, if you want to get your, your, uh, a filling put in, in your mouth, if you've got a bad tooth or you've got a cavity and you need to get a filling, I advise that you don't come to me. Now, I have a drill. It's a great drill. I mean, it, it, it could make a hole in your tooth, and it wouldn't take very long. Um, it's a nice Black & Decker drill. I almost brought it to show it to you. And it, it would put a hole in your tooth, but it wouldn't make you feel better. If you wanted to get the job done, you'd go to Larry Melton or Rex Eatman or any of the other dentists here among us, and uh, they could make you feel better. The object of your faith better be a person who can do the job. It's not just having faith in whoever but having faith in Him, in Jesus, because He is the means that God has provided. And believing uh, basically means trust. Like you believed that the chair that you're sitting in could hold you, but it wasn't until you sat in that chair that uh, the trust or the belief was really shown to, uh, to be true. When you sat in the chair, you believed it, in, a, in a, an experiential sense. That's the idea of believing in him. It's not just believing that, yeah, Jesus could do it, but you actually sit in the salvation that Jesus offers. And what's the result of doing that? Again, look at John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. I like that because in the original language, it's very emphatic. Literally, you could translate it, will by no means perish. In English, we say uh, a couple of different voices. We could say active or passive. I did something, that's active. Something was done to me, that's passive. But in Greek, there is a third voice. It's called middle. And the middle voice is something that the, 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 th- the person or the thing doing it is acting upon themselves. 
And this is the, the, the voice that Jesus uses here when he says, should not perish. It's the idea that when you believe in him, you should not perish or you should not perish yourself. It's a very unusual way of, uh, of phrasing it, and which is probably why our English doesn't even try. But it's the idea that it's something you're doing to yourself or for the benefit of yourself when you believe in Jesus Christ. That's kind of a neat added insight. And he says that you should not perish, and then he flips it, and he tells the positive side of the same result. Again, look at John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The word but in the Greek is a very strong contrast. It's not a mild you know, contrast, and there is a, a word for that. It is a strong contrast. Not going to perish, but you're going to have eternal life, which contrasts with eternal death. Remember why Jesus rose from the, from the grave? I don't know that there's an Easter that's gone by in the last three or four years that I haven't mentioned to you Romans 4.25. It's a great verse. It's my favorite uh, Easter verse, but it talks about the fact that Jesus was put to death because of our transgressions. We know that. But he was also raised, Paul says, because of our justification. In other words, the resurrection is proof that God the Father accepted Jesus' death on our behalf. If you ever wonder if you're truly saved or if, if God's provision for you has been adequate, you just have to look at the empty grave. The empty tomb shows that God was satisfied with, uh, with Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf. So here's a second principle, and really the final application, you might say, for this text today in our study. And that's this, that God's gift of forgiveness has eternal benefits for those who believe in Jesus. And I guess the emphasis there is the word eternal. Uh, the rest of it we're, we're very familiar with, but think about this, eternal benefits. It's forever. When we are given a gift, depending on the person who gives it to us or whether or not we wanted it, um, it depends on how we receive that gift. Most of us can fake it well enough to say thank you and then know that we'll either re-gift it to somebody else or we'll stick it up in the attic with all the other stuff that we uh, intend to take out to the landfill. But if it's a gift that we really need, if it's a gift that we really prize, a, a, a possession that we are glad to get, we will accept it gratefully, cheerfully, eagerly. And this is the gift of salvation. It's probably not many of us who are in our class now that have not placed their faith in Christ. If you haven't, if for some reason you've, you've skated along in your Christian life or skated along in your church life, for years, but have never really grasped the sense of what John 3.16 or this, these principles are. It'd be a great day today to do that, to place your faith in Jesus and to transfer your trust from a life of good deeds to a life of Christ, who uh, trusting in Christ who died for your sins. But you know, most of us have done that. And so how do we apply John 3.16? It's just a renewed gratitude a renewed perspective, 
as we share those principles, let me just read them to you again. First of all, consider how much God loves you. He gave his very best for you. He didn't just give you uh, the leftovers. He gave you the first and the best. That is his only son. And God's gift of forgiveness has eternal benefits, eternal benefits forever, which is a long, long time. Karl Barth was once asked, the great theologian Karl Barth, he was once asked if he could sum up everything he had written in the field of theology. And he, he thought for a second and he said, yes, I can. He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, the Bible tells me so. God's message to us is not hard to understand. A child can understand it. It's hard to accept. It takes often the the faith of a child to accept it because it takes great humility, realizing that our need is total for God. The essence of John 3.16 is really the essence of Easter, that God loved, therefore he gave with the intent that a believer might have life and not death. It's that simple. So let's read one more time. Let's read John 3.16 together out loud. Just read your version, and I'll read mine here. Let's read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much that you sent your Son to live a life we could never live, to die the death that we deserved. In fact, to die a death in some sense that we could never die, that is, a death that we would be the sacrificial payment for our sins in such a way that our sins would be forgiven. Thank you so much for giving your very best and for providing a means that that we could never get any other way. Thank you for Jesus' simple statement in the conversation to Nicodemus that you loved us so much that you gave your son, you gave your very best. And we pray for anyone here who hasn't believed that they would, and for those of us who have believed, that this wouldn't just be another ho-hum look at a very familiar verse, but this wonderful, the wonderful truths in John 3.16 would reignite our love for you, the one who first loved us and gave his son. And we pray in his name. Amen.